The following presentation is brought to you through the power of science. Welcome to Generations Geek, a family-friendly celebration of geekdom by father-daughter future comic book store owners. I'm science fiction writer Scott Pearson, and I'm joined, as always, by my daughter. Hello. And we are two generations of geek. This is episode 24, Sizzler on Comics, and we'll be talking with comic book historian Alan Sizzler Kistler about comic books, comic book movies, people who like comic books, and which comic books people who like comic books should be reading if they want to learn more about comic books. First, some program notes. This special double-plus-length episode wraps up our second series of shows. Yes, we've now been at this for two years. And with just two dozen shows under our belt, Generations Geek is a finalist for a 2014 Parsec Award. Check in with us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more, and drop by generationsgeek.com for handy links to all our shows. Plus, you can email us at thegeeks at generationsgeek.com. Now, on with the show. Alan Sizzler Kissler, welcome to Generations Geek. Thank you. We are happy to have you here. We are looking forward to being regaled with many stories of comic book splendor. <laughs> when did you get hooked? When was your first comic book? Do you remember your first comic book? You know, I, I would occasionally get something for a birthday. So I, I remember them being around here and there. Mm-hmm. Or also look at, looking at the library, you would find... Um, a Care Bears comic or some random <laughs> Superman. or I specifically remember, I don't know why, uh, I have this clear, crystal clear image of the Care Bears in one of their like cloud cars <laughs> looking down, and they've got some kid dressed as a cowboy with them, and they're like following water and finding out why there's a drought or something. Like, I have <laughs> crystal clear memory. I must have been six years old or something, of like reading that with my grandfather. But I really wasn't into it because it also it really wasn't around that much. I didn't run into it at newsstands tremendously. And I was a science fiction fan from an early age. So I was reading Asimov and, and also the stuff he did with his, his wife, Norby, the mixed up robot. Mm-hmm. I loved those books. And of course, I was into Star Wars and I was aware of Star Trek. I wasn't into it yet. And I had a babysitter, uh, Linda, who was a big geek herself and often encouraged these things. And there was one day where I was maybe about eight, close to nine, and she told me, hey, there's this convention happening nearby. It was like Jubilee Enterprises. And, uh, like, you know, you've read a bunch of the sci-fi books in the library. Maybe they've got some new books you haven't checked out. And I was like, oh, that sounds fantastic. So, so we went, and there was a raffle at the door, and I wound up winning one of the prizes, which was maybe 15 free comics, I think, roughly, like mm-hmm. a dozen or 15. So I recognized the characters because I watched cartoons. So I was aware of Spider-Man and the Hulk and, and all this stuff, but I was looking through these comics and wondering, what the hell is an X-Man? <laughs> um, and it's like, oh, The Flash, okay, I've, I've seen The Flash on TV. He just His new show had just started with, with John Wesley Schiff. Like, I know who oh. The Flash is, cool. And then when I was reading them at home, I was so fascinated because... Like, as a kid, when I was watching things, I always wanted characters to meet. Like, I kept wondering if, if Columbo could meet J.B. Fletcher. And, <laughs> and would they like each other or would not? You know, would they, <laughs> they stuff each other's toes? And I also liked the idea of, of legacy and history and stories. The, like, 
a couple of books when I when I read them in Asimov's universe that the fact that they took place years later or maybe a century later, but yeah. here was this one person or this one robot who knew characters in both stories. I love that. So I was reading these comics, and I saw that Spider-Man knew this guy, Iron Man, and they were part of something called the Avengers, and that was cool. And then uh, I saw that uh, Superman and Batman knew each other, and and that and the issue with with uh, I, I I got a couple Flash issues, and one was with Superman racing Wally West, and they were referencing whether or not he was as fast as the old Flash Barry, and I was just my mind was blowing up like oh my god, there was another Flash who died, <laughs> and like superheroes die, and this guy took over. That's insane. And then one of the other comics actually was Flash Year One, uh, Born to Run by Mark Wade, which was Mark Wade increasing, uh, expanding the origin of Wally West and showing how he had become Kid Flash and what he thought of Barry Allen and everything. So I was just going into that like, oh, my God. And it was such an interesting perspective for me as a kid for the first time seeing a story where you actually knew the ending. You knew that Wally will survive these trials and become the Flash. You know that his uncle, who's training him in flashback, is dead by the point that he's he's telling you this story. But it didn't matter because you were on this journey and you're wondering, well, how does he get out of that situation? Well, how does he learn? And I just I just love this idea of legacy and history and, and yeah. everything being connected. I love the idea that doc, as I got to know it more, Doctor Strange, with all his sorceress might, could live in the same universe as super scientists in the Fantastic Four. I thought that was so cool. And I just had the fortune of, um, I had uh, an uncle who had temporarily stored his comic book collection at my grandfather's house. My grandfather lived across the street from me. So I just started going over, and I was reading through this collection of comics throughout like the 70s and, and 80s. And so like over the course of a summer, I had to write about 10 years of stories <laughs> in, in like Captain America, Fantastic Four, Iron Man. He was mostly a Marvel guy, so DC had to come a little later. So I just now suddenly knew all this stuff. And because I was reading it all at once, even as a kid, although I couldn't phrase it properly, I could see when story shifts were happening. That when a, when a writer left, Tony Stark spoke differently now. And, mm -hmm. and when editors changed, different supporting characters were in Captain America's life and, and stuff like that. So I could see that happening. And my grandfather and I would talk about it. And, and I'd explain some stories to him. Like, oh my God, Captain America, like, quit being Captain America in this story. He was really ticked off the government. My grandfather would look at it like, okay, we'll see, this was printed in blah, 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 blah. And that there was this thing called Watergate that had just happened. So this seems to be a reaction to that. And I was like, oh my God, that's so interesting. <laughs> and I was just, so at a very early age, I was quickly understanding and looking at it as like everything, not just the characters, but who the writers were, who the editors yeah. were, and when was it done? And then it also turned out, as, as my grandparents saw that this was becoming like a real interest of mine and not just something he's doing for a summer, they brought up that they knew Jack Burnley, who has since passed away, but he was a Golden Age artist. He was also the co-creator of the original Starman. And he did the Sunday dailies for uh, Batman. And he also worked on Superman here and there, back mm -hmm. in the Golden Age. So they called up Jack and they said, hey, our grandson's getting into comics. Like, I think he'd like to meet you, so... We drove down to uh, where he lived. So we spent this weekend with the Burnleys, lovely people, 
And he was talking about how Batman and Superman were back in his day. And then he also showed me, uh, he had a couple of trades, like the greatest Batman stories ever told and the greatest Joker stories ever told. Mm -hmm. And so I was looking through those. And, you know, those trades, you go from Bob Kane and, yeah. and Bill Finger stuff to the 1950s, you know, Batmite stuff to the 60s when you've got the new look under Julia Schwartz and then all the way up to the, the mid-80s where Mike Barr and, and Todd McFarlane and Alan Davis are, are showing up. So again, even though I was really young, I was getting very much a clear picture of, unlike Sherlock Holmes and other characters I saw, where it's just the, the one version, as far as I knew, that Batman, Superman, these other characters would sometimes change. And yep. their world would change. But there was still stuff that remained the same. It was still Batman. Even if this Batman was much friendlier than that Batman, it was still the same guy. They'd both seen their parents die. So, so yeah, so then I just started really pursuing it. And, and I found a, a newsstand that sold comics. And then I would, Linda and I, each year would go back to that convention or occasionally would look for other conventions. And I'd be on the lookout for certain back issues now. And then the internet was just starting to become a thing a couple of years later. So I was on Prodigy, going on the message board. <laughs> you remember Prodigy? And, and, uh, and then the original America Online yeah. and the frightening online sound. And, uh, <laughs> and I, was, I would go to message boards and just talk to people and, and get to know. And I, I just wanted to know even the basics of characters, even if I wasn't reading them. I was just curious, what are the basics? So I would just ask people, like, so what is Spawn's deal? Mm-hmm. And and who is this, you know, who are these new warriors that I see team up with Spider-Man now and then? Stuff like that. Uh, so, yeah, I just, it, it, eight or nine is when it really just launched because I won this door prize. And so there's an alternate universe where you didn't win the prize. <laughs> right. And you're now just a real estate person or something, right. not a total comic book geek. Yeah, where I was shy or, or like I let my shyness over, overwhelm me that yeah. day and I like, no, I can't be in a place with too many people, or <laughs> I didn't take the raffle ticket, or I just said, oh, I'm, I'm sick this week, let's, let's hang out. As you continued developing your, your overall knowledge, yeah, when did it occur to you that you might actually be able to pursue this in, in something like a professional fashion? That definitely came late in the game, comparatively. Part of it was putting stuff online because I didn't see anyone else writing it. Because I, I started contributing to different fan sites because it was fun. Mm -hmm. And because you build a community there. I did quickly become known as the go-to guy if you need something explained. And, and that was fun. And I would do these pieces for uh, fanzing.com, then, which then changed into monitorduty.com, that were kind of the histories of heroes. And it was sort of like, all right, there's a new Power Girl miniseries coming out. Let's tell you the basics of what you have to know about Power Girl. And, and here's the information. Here's to keep it straight. But then stuff like Wikipedia started showing up, and there was not a need for this kind of a writing. And also, I was getting bored with it because I was really getting more interested in discussing, well, what about these stories that didn't go anywhere? And what about, you know, why did they decide at one point, okay, she's not from Krypton? And why did they decide this later? And mm -hmm. where did we go wrong with the character, maybe? So I just started writing articles on that, talking about the evolution of things, because it was more interesting to me. And I didn't see anyone else getting into it that far. Like, even Wikipedia, they would say, like, NDC Comics changed this in 85. But I didn't see why. 
or what was the thought process behind it? And what was the argument? And did they think it was a good idea later or what? So yeah, I just started doing that. And I also, by that point, uh, college was ending for me. And which also is part of what spurred it because I was getting into conversations with, with guys and girls at college. And I would talk about why I dug these characters. It wasn't just because Superman was cool, because these versions of Superman spoke to something and these didn't and blah, blah, blah. And they would ask, you know, is there any way where I can read about this? And I, I couldn't think of anywhere. So I was like, well, then screw it. I'm writing it. Like at this point, X-Men had come out and Spider-Man had come out uh, in, the, in the films. And while I was, it was great to see the popularity, I would still see people say like, oh, but I can't read the comics. It's too intimidating. They've been around for so long. And da, da, da. So when I was writing these articles, I also made a very conscious decision. I didn't want to look like a gatekeeper or something. It was, it was yeah. more like an invitation. Like, hey, we're going we're gonna to speak about this in a conversational tone. We are going to talk about the history of Captain America. But if you know nothing about Captain America or Marvel Comics at all, don't worry about it. We'll explain it along the way. And we can talk about the beautiful metaphor of patriotism. We can also talk about how dumb some stories were or how silly it is that certain people dressed the way they did, because why not? It's fun. <laughs> and uh, so I just took that approach, and it seemed to work. When I was seeing the response, I started thinking, like, okay, maybe I should push this. Maybe I should just... And I wasn't necessarily thinking of, like, for a paycheck. I just wanted yeah. to see it more. Mm -hmm. and, and so I would go to message boards where... I would find people who I thought they might be interested in reading something like this. And I would just link like, hey, if anyone's interested, here you go. And actually, Felicia Day recently talked about that on a panel where it's like, if, if you want to advertise, go to blogs that honestly are already into the thing that you're selling. Mm -hmm. And just, you can say very casually, like, hey, I really like what you wrote about this. I wrote this about something, you know, if you have free time, you know, you might enjoy it. Not please tell this to your fans, not please tweet this to your followers, just you might enjoy it which is the way to do it. So after a while, I was thinking about like uh, leaving Monitor Duty because I was now getting enough of a fan base. I was thinking maybe I could charge for this uh, on some small level because Monitor Duty couldn't pay me. It wasn't their fault. It was, it was not that kind of a site. And then I got a call from a, a guy who was doing the behind-the-scenes uh, featurette uh, for Aquaman because Warner Brothers was collecting the old Aquaman cartoons and putting them on DVD. And they figured they wanted to do a little, like, you know, look back at the history of Aquaman. So they emailed me and basically said, we found, uh, we've been using your article in Aquaman as our go-to guide because we found it to be the most comprehensive, but also the easiest to understand. <laughs> and we're going to be filming in New York. We understand you're based in New York. Would you, on, on this day next week, be free for a couple of hours? Like, come on down and we can film you for the, the documentary and, and, uh, and see what fun that would be. And I was like, sure, that'd be fantastic. So, so I went down there and they labeled me comic book historian there. They were going to call me comic book expert in the, in the credits. And I said I, I would rather not because it's almost too vague. I can't tell you a damn thing about inking techniques today or... You know, what was the best quality paper to use for certain effects? Although yeah. I appreciate it. I'm just not knowledgeable in that stuff. So if you're like history, that, that's what I talk about. So let's do historian. And, and, and I would heard people refer to me as that before a few times, so it just seemed like it worked. So, yeah, they put me on the, on the movie uh, featurette, and now Warner Brothers Film had me basically in a file that said, you know, comic book historian. And I played it up for them that they, they liked the fact that I was pretty much the youngest guy in that Talking Heads piece. 
and and that I was coming at it with a different kind of energy. So yeah, I, I then made it a point of uh, when I was in LA a few times to contact those people and just ask, hey, are you filming anything in this vein? Because I'm going to be in town from this date to this date. And they would tell me, oh, actually, that's fantastic. We we need you. Uh, we could really use you to, to explain the new gods or or Rachel Ghoul and what the League of Assassins exactly is. And da, 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 da. But after that first video, I figured like, okay, I started printing business cards uh, with Comic Historian on it. And again, just started pushing myself out. But now with that title, and I could say, you know, yeah. I show up on Warner Brothers animated uh, documentaries. And also by that time, I started getting to know some of our crew uh, of science fiction writers. Started getting to know Robert uh, Greenberger and, and, and Glenn Howman and those guys. And so when they started up Comic Mix, I was able to, to chat my way into that. And they were able to pay me some for my pieces there. So now I was a paid yep. dude for the internet. And I just kept at it. And finally, that, that evolved into doing some books as well. And, and also uh, what I now call geek consulting, where if someone was doing a novelization or a cartoon adaptation or a video game adaptation, I made it clear, like, hey, if you need someone just... To help you figure out what fans have responded to in the past, historically, or, you know, what is this character in a nutshell when you take away yeah. all the continuity changes, like what is the core of this character that seems to work, you know, I'll help you out. And that's been okay so far. So, yeah, yeah. it's just, it's been, it's also been progressing each year. Yeah. Because uh, I'm constantly pushing and constantly pushing what, what it can do and what else we can roll with it. Historian is the perfect word because you're not just providing the recitation of facts that an encyclopedia does. You're, you're looking at that social context, historical context. Right, which I made it very clear about when I was doing the, the original pieces. I didn't just want to talk about when did Superman first start flying? Which issue did he first start flying? I want to talk about like, well, did it come from the radio show? Did it come from the cartoon? Was it a departure from what his character was meant to be? Or was it an enhancement of what his character was meant to be when the other powers came? Which, you know, was this a response to the fact that other superheroes were now showing up and you wanted to keep him more powerful than them? Like, what was going on? It comes up when I think about how certain people will test certain geeks, particularly women. Mm -hmm. uh, just like, you know, I'm into Superman. They're like, oh, really? Well, which <laughs> issue did you start with? Or, the lady. <laughs> how many? How many series did you? Who is your Flash? You know, and that kind of uh, crap. And I've even had a couple times where you know I said I'm a comic book historian, and someone will be like, "Well, what issue did Spider-Man first? Or someone tried to quiz me on on some anime, and I flat out told them I'm not actually big on anime. Like there are anime I really enjoy, yeah, but by no means do I follow the genre. Uh, or medium as much as, you know, I follow com superhero comics or American superhero comics. And they were still quizzing me on this and, and like, you know, well, can you name all the characters of this? Like, no. It's like, ah, I got you. Like, I just told you I'm not into it. <laughs> but anyway, that was, that was exactly what I wanted to not get into. And, and what I, I can do some of that recitation, but that's not really the point. I don't really care if, if someone can tell me exactly which issue Thanos appeared in uh, first, I would rather, you know, I think Geek Love is having a discussion about, well, why do you think Thanos works? And when does, when has he not worked? And, you know, is it interesting that he was based on Metron of the New Gods originally, but then became more like Darkseid? And yet is 
arguably more popular than dark side in some circles and, and stuff like that. Like that's the discussion I want to have and encourage. You can look up any issue number. That's just, that's just fact checking for an article. Should we ask the inevitable Marvel versus DC or save that one? For <laughs> can, can we not really? You can, you can uh, ask whatever you want. So Marvel versus DC. <laughs> Are you asking Sizzler's preference between the two universes, or are you asking about their success in trying to make a film universe? What, where are you going with the well, question? Well, I think it's become pretty obvious that Marvel is succeeding at building a <laughs> film universe a lot more than DC. <laughs> um, but uh, preference, really, yeah. You know, I grew up on Marvel and had a deep preference for that. And I, and I would argue that also at the time I really started reading which was the late 80s, early 90s. I think Marvel was better in a lot of ways. Uh, I think DC became somewhat embarrassed of its own history and you know, some of its characters after, after the mid-80s. Like You had The Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen, which were great, but it's one of those classic things. You'll see it happen in Hollywood constantly when a movie's successful. Actually, a perfect example is Gene Roddenberry, one of his favorite notes that he got when he was developing a new show and Planet of the Apes came out. And they got the network note of like, all right, Planet of the Apes is doing incredibly well. The public obviously wants apes. Is there a way we can have some form of animal creature, humanoid animal in this show? Uh, and it's just this perfect example of like, that's not really why the public liked Planet of the Apes. <laughs> It's an amazing story that is the Scopes monkey trial in reverse. And <laughs> it's got all these wonderful political social allegories in it. And a question about, you know, is, is this struggle even worth anything? Once you get to the ending and you see this terrible, inevitable loss, it's, it's, that was all there beyond the fact that they were people in monkey suits. <laughs> but that's the thinking. And likewise, when Dark Knight Returns came out and then Watchmen, and both of them were very much about deconstructing heroes and taking it to a new place of, well, if we went with a dark, real-world setting, the Watchmen would all be messed up to operate in this world. And the most heroic among them would be, by his own admission, borderline psychotic. And likewise, Dark Knight Returns, just like, you know, what if you know, Batman was kind of crazy? And the success of that inspired so many people, the higher-ups, rather, in comics to say, all right, this is what people want from heroes, so we need to make everything darker, we need to make it mm -hmm. grittier, we need to make it kind of twisted, that they're emotionally unhealthy in some ways or something. That it's like that, that actually wasn't what made those stories good. <laughs> like the, They had very strong storylines throughout it and character arcs, um, although I still think Dark Knight Returns falls apart in the last chapter because Superman's way, way, way too out of character. And I think DC really took the brunt of that because also they saw the success of Marvel, and so they were trying to be more like Marvel, but in the most shallow ways. So mm -hmm. you had John Byrne reboot Superman, and the whole idea was that now I kind of hate it word grounded of like, okay, well, he's not realistic enough. So take away the fortress and take away the flying dog and take away that anyone survived Krypton and take away that Clark is kind of meek and he can't be vigilante, so he's actually a deputized official of, of the police department, da, da 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 By like 1990, if you look at his comics, and it continued on for a few years, Superman is just a character in an, an ensemble piece 
he just seems to be this guy that everyone else in the cast knows. But it's not Superman's comic anymore. There are these entire issues almost dedicated to Cat Grant dealing with uh, sexual harassment and Jimmy Olsen dealing with uh, the job he wants and trying to afford his apartment. And while it's all cool and while it's all good character building, it's Superman's story. And that happens just so often in DC in the 90s. They, they were rocking out with Batman. They kind of understood Batman. But so many other heroes, they really weren't going for it. Or they were going for these really lame makeovers because they were getting afraid of the power level. Like Brainiac was this world-threatening alien intelligence who could shrug off Superman's strongest blows with his force field. Like somehow he made a force field that could just ignore Superman's strength. And that was terrifying, if you really think about it. And in the 80s, they redefined him as a circus mentalist with telepathic powers who may or may not be crazy. I was like, well, that sucks. Like, what <laughs> happened to the alien with the freaking skull-shaped spaceship? That was awesome. <laughs> so, we, meanwhile, Marvel was having more fun. I mean, they also had some ridiculous crap going on. They brought Jean Grey back from the dead. X-Men be started becoming more of a soap opera. But at least they were having more fun at that time. But it's in waves, because then after a while, Marvel, I thought, in general, started getting way, way, way into its own self and hampered by its own need for twist plot lines instead of actual story arcs. So by the, the late 90s, I was more into DC, because at that time, we were having kind of a nice renaissance where Grant Morrison's writing Justice League, and suddenly there was an embrace of the absurdity of superheroes again and, and just how imaginative you can be, where Superman's literally wrestling an angel while... <laughs> The Justice League are fighting renegade angels who want to take over heaven, and the Flash is caught between a teleporter on the moon, and these other demons are trying to smash the moon into Earth because for fun. And, <laughs> and that was all in like two issues. I'm like, this is freaking amazing! Yes! More! It's like, what's next? A giant starfish that takes over the planet? Done! Continue, sir. And it was, it was great. Meanwhile, Marvel was all, is he a clone or not a clone in Spider-Man? It was boring. And now we've gotten sort of a, a flip of the pendulum again, where I was, I was really digging them both for the past decade um, for different atmospheres. I, I kind of joked a few times at panels that Marvel does crime fighters and DC does superheroes. Because mm -hmm. uh, DC had sort of a more romanticized aspect of things. And that was fine. And that, that worked lovely for their atmosphere. Um, and now the New 52 has happened. And DC's reboot in the New 52, there are some good stories, definitely. I think uh, Scott Snyder's doing an amazing job in Superman Unchained. I think Greg Pak is rocking out on action comics and, and Superman Batman. Earth 2 is interesting. But on the whole, it's, it's again, it's like they're trying to be not just Marvel, but 1990s Marvel. Uh, and, and they're trying to ground everything and the superhero teams seem more like rival gangs at this point, and it's freaking depressing. So yeah. so right now, I, I prefer the kind of feel of the Marvel Universe on a whole mm -hmm. right now. And I certainly prefer the Marvel movies. There are parts of Man of Steel I think are actually really good, and, and I think they had a great cast, and I think there's so much potential there. But even the atmosphere, the fact that you're, you're kind of trying to match a Nolan Universe atmosphere and almost setting it up that it won't seem strange when Batman shows up later because this is already a, this dark, monochromatic world almost. Yeah. And 
when I saw Guardians, I just thought it's not just that Marvel is having fun using such different characters. They're willing to give each movie a different atmosphere. Avengers is a very different atmosphere than Guardians. Avengers actually takes itself much more seriously than Guardians. Um, and that's fine. They can exist in the same universe, but still have their own atmosphere. Winter Soldier is not at all a movie like Guardians of the Galaxy. But you have no problem believing they're in the same universe. Because that's fine. We all have different lives. And we all have different atmospheres to our, to our characters. And Warner Brothers just seems to be limiting itself where Wonder Woman, Batman, and Superman all look like they went to the same tailor. <laughs> and just like, no, this is, this is really killing the fun. Wonder Woman isn't a guest star in Superman's universe. Wonder Woman has her own universe and rocks it. There's an embrace of what they're doing in Marvel. There's not a shame or an embarrassment in it. Yep. We have Rocket Raccoon, and it's 20 minutes before we even give you an explanation why there's a talking raccoon. <laughs> Because who the hell cares? It's a talking raccoon with a gun who's obviously friends with a tree. Yeah. <laughs> Fine. We'll get to their origin later. Like, right now, just enjoy the story. And that's, and that's great. Uh, likewise, one of my favorite bits about the first Iron Man movie, he, he tries out his armor, gets frozen, crashes. Fine. He's told he needs to make armor with this titanium gold alloy. He sees it, and he decides, you know what? Throw some hot rod red in there. <laughs> and that's all he says. And that's all you need. That's why he looks like a superhero. Because Tony Stark likes red. <laughs> and we saw him working on a hot rod. That's all you freaking need. Captain America, like, has no reason really at a certain point to wear the costume continuously during World War II. But you agreed you're seeing a movie called Captain America. And he wears a costume. He's a superhero. <laughs> and, and I just love that embrace of like, yeah, we're not hiding from that. Like, he, dude, yeah. wears a costume? He's going to wear a costume in Winter Soldier, even though everyone knows who he is. Like, why not? <laughs> and uh, whereas in, in Man of Steel, you had, I think it's like an hour and a half into the movie before someone says Superman, and it's clearly dismissed as just, oh, just some of the guys are calling him that. And on top of that, they almost hint at saying it before, and they, they take it away like, no, we're not calling him Superman. Why not? That's who he is. And, and you're trying to those posters where they were trying to make the S look maybe less like an No, it's an S. We know that. Yeah. If you say it's an alien glyph, we know the symbol. Like, don't, don't try to disguise it. And, and, like, on Jor-El's armor, they put all this extra stuff on it so you wouldn't see the S too clear. I'm like, well, why? Yeah. That actually doesn't make any sense. If it's a family crest, then it should be there very clearly. He wouldn't put extra crap on it. Yeah, it's kind of like when Enterprise first debuted, the TV series. They didn't call it Star Trek Enterprise. They just called right. it Enterprise. Right. And they seemed to be, they were trying to distance themselves from the rest of the franchise. And why do that? Are you ashamed of it? Isn't it great? Isn't it because the franchise is so great that you're here? Why wouldn't you yeah. embrace that backstory, that chronology that's there? The fact that Snyder... Zack Snyder, when he was doing Man of Steel, him or David Goyer, one of them said it, uh, we're trying to do a science fiction movie, not a superhero movie. And I just thought, screw you. <laughs> yeah. It's Superman. What are you talking about? And, and on top of that, as a science fiction movie, it's full of plot holes. It's, it's this embarrassment of things. It's this, you know, we're, we're, we're muting the colors so that he's more grounded. Like, why? Yeah. 
it's Superman. And no one going into the theater would have said to you later, like, I was really into this movie about this, you know, itinerant worker, and, and he, he had, like, some weird powers. And then at one point he put on a cape, and it just took me out of No, we know. <laughs> we know who it is. As even if we never heard of Superman before, we see in the trailer that at some point this dude will put on a cape and fly. And we accept that. We entered in the contract that we'll watch that. In the same way that Harry Potter, like, none of us were actually amazed and, and oh my god the kid can fly on a broom we knew that going in <laughs> we knew that magic exists in this world so so don't be embarrassed about us i mean obviously you still have to deal with story pacing and everything but you know rock it out and enjoy it embrace it yeah it's it's a shame because i love as i've gotten older there's so much of the dc universe i've come to love because i think there's a lot of beautiful myth in the dc universe and, and that you can really interpret it in some in amazing ways. And it truly is like, it's actually really a multiverse. And I think that actually helps it out a lot. I think it's, it's so epic in what you can do with it. And sadly, I think the comics are being kind of limited with it now. And the movies even more so. So it's, it's one of those things where I, I wish they were doing better. Because there's so many aspects of the DC Universe I just think are amazing. And that Marvel doesn't quite get the same cosmic scale. Yeah, uh, but Marvel is kicking ass right now in, in both its comics and, and its movies. There is one thing where everyone is falling short. I'm gonna throw that ball over to Ella. Female superheroes. Yeah, <laughs> everyone's falling short on that. Absolutely. Sony just announced they're probably gonna go for a female-led movie, someone from the Spider-Man verse. So that'll be interesting. But I mean, is there anything specifically you you've got thoughts on that? We go to our local comic book store a lot. Mm -hmm. And so I'm always there, wandering around, looking at stuff, because stuff is cool. <laughs> and um, I've found that online and in stores, when there's Avengers merch, um, like official Disney Avengers merch, a lot of the time it's like uh, Avengers, but Natasha Romanov isn't there. Yeah. And then to a further point, when they first released their clothing, like their t-shirts and their underwear line or whatever. Um, it's like all the women's stuff said I need a hero and all the men's stuff said I am a hero. Yeah. Which was like really bad and they like managed to fix that somehow pretty quick I think and did that. But it's just like what just, what happened? Like <laughs> we know that Marvel isn't sexist. What is going on? It's, it's again the disconnect that can happen between whoever is running advertising and the people actually making the work. And you'll see that in, in different ways, even just with movie trailers. I mean, Leonard Nimoy was so excited when, when he was directing Star Trek Three about when the Enterprise was going to blow up. And it's like, oh my God, everyone will be shocked. It'll be, oh, no one will see it coming. It'll just be that everyone will gasp when they realize it's coming, da 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 And they showed in the trailer, and he's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Why would you do that? And the marketing's like, because that's an exciting part of the film. Like, but no! It's a, it's a surprise. It's a shocker. Like, what are you doing? It's so uh, hard to have surprises these days between, yeah. between uh, leaks and putting yeah. all the good stuff in the trailers. Yeah. It really, you know, and then you have the people that go to the opposite end of the spectrum like J.J. Uh, Abrams when he was making Trek then I think he went too extreme to try to keep every single thing I mean he, he just started lying and I need to take tips from Beyonce but yeah <laughs> I understand 
why you would start lying because it's so rampant. But you have to you have to dribble out a few crumbs to the fans <laughs> beforehand sure, sure. because then you you run the uh, the danger of having it be so anticlimactic. Yeah, you know, you know when the, when he says you know I am Khan, it's like well so you know yeah. it's it's like it, yeah. it didn't have any payoff because no. the marketing was so strange. I mean, it also relied on you giving a damn about the previous version of Khan. And if you only watch the reboot films, there's no reason that should be an interesting revelation to you. No, it has but, no meaning. It's just a name. Right. He could say, I am Fred. I am right, you know, exactly. Luigi. It, it would be the same thing. <laughs> I really wanted him to say, I am God. He pulls a green yeah. hat out of his pocket. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, back back to your point, I mean, it. although I do think it's it's just, you know, marketing was stupid and messed up, it's also the responsibility of Disney, Marvel, whoever to make sure that marketing knows what your product is. And it's ridiculous that in a universe with su such great women characters, a few of whom have been making it to film, you would think still to put the phrase, I need a hero on it. Like, <laughs> no, the whole point is Natasha needs no one. Yeah, you know, not even soldiers, Clint. <laughs> yeah, Winter Soldier's subtitle was really like, let's watch Black Widow kick ass. It's ridiculous, and it is also ridiculous that, as much as I like Guardians, and I think it's a fantastic film, and I encourage everyone to see it, uh, it also bothers me, and this is not a spoiler, that in, in a team in the comics that has multiple female members, the movie version of the team goes back to having token, not token, but just the single Warrior Woman member. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, one of the fun things about the team is, you know, there are it's such a diverse group, which means a diversity in the women, too. It's got uh, women on there who are not necessarily seeing themselves as warriors. It has bisexual and, and gay women on the team. It's a great thing to do. And while I understand you want to keep the, the group close-knit, I kept thinking, well, you know, maybe if you just took out one little thing here and you could have had a little more dialogue for one of the other women characters, even just brought her in, like, halfway through. Maybe she's not part of the team originally, but then joins it by the end or something. Like, there, there are ways to get around that. Likewise, also with the Avengers. You had Natasha there, and they introduced Clint. They could have, in, I mean, yeah, he had his little thing in Thor, but that, that's barely anything. You could have easily had, at some point, when they're in their lab, like, it would make sense for there to be other technicians in the lab and other, other scientists around. So you could have easily snuck in Janet Van Dyne visiting her her guy Henry Pym, and maybe she could even do a little wasp thing. And you don't have to say anything about it other than like, oh, they're shield agents. They also have powers. Really? Yes. And then just go into it and leave the Ant Man Wasp movie, which is what it should be called, not just Ant Man, to explore their origins later. You could have you could have done that. And it's a shame. It's a shame also that. When we talk about representation, obviously we're not just talking about uh, white women. And, and there are women of color, women of different nationalities in the Marvel Universe who really kick a lot of ass. Um, most of them are in X-Men. I actually did a piece recently where I was sort of pointing out that while there is diversity in the Marvel Universe in the comics, a lot of it is in X-Men. And which I get on one hand because like it's such a great allegory for diversity. On the other hand, you don't want X-Men and the X-Books to just be sort of the dumping ground or gentrification of where all the diverse characters go. Yeah. Uh, you can have 
you know, Saudi and, and, you know, Nigerian and, and Kenyan women and, and Mexican and, and Hispanic women who have powers and aren't mutants or related to the X-Men. Uh, and Marvel's, Marvel's making good pushes to that. Ms. Marvel right now is a fantastic book. And Carol now becoming Captain Marvel. I've been yelling at the, about that for years. And she's been amazing as Captain Marvel. And it's, it's, again, it's ridiculous to me that you couldn't have her even in, in the Avengers, even just in the background of, of S.H.I.E.L.D., that she couldn't just be there like, this is Carol Danvers. She's a badass pilot. And even if you just give her three or four lines, you could give her sort of a Peggy Carter role and have her rock out just a bit so that when she becomes a superhero later, we've already got her established. And, and that we're already showing there are great women in the Marvel Universe. You know, so I, I do think there needs to be a bigger push for that, especially we need to stop looking at certain models that just don't work anymore. There's a lot of Hollywood that still looks at Catwoman and Elektra as proof that people aren't going to see those films. And there's also a lot of Hollywood that when stuff shows up that disrupts their idea, they point out, well, there's an exception because, like Tomb Raider, if you point out too many of them, they're like, well, that's not because people wanted to see a badass woman archaeologist that had Angelina Jolie. So that's why that was successful. Fine, put someone of Angelina Jolie's caliber in a Captain Marvel movie or a Ms. Marvel movie, if that's, if that's what you think is the only factor. Uh, likewise, they seem to be much more comfortable in Hollywood with, if you're a woman who kicks ass physically, then they seem to be okay with you if you're a teenager or entering your 20s. Because then it's a coming-of-age story. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they can still toy with romance and stuff. If you're over the age of 25, then you're probably also alcoholic or emotionally, mentally damaged, or you're an assassin. And those are the categories they tend to put them in. Like Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, while we dig it and we get her, she's messed up. And there seems to be this need to justify that. There seems to be a need to justify women in certain roles anyway. Uh, when it comes to action movies, as opposed to just this this person's here, because obviously they're meant to be here. Because you know, even Planet of the Apes, uh, the Carrie Russell's character at one point is mentioning something about the disease that wiped out humanity, and someone says, "Well, how do you know that?" And someone else does very awkward exposition of, "You know, she worked for the CDC during the outbreak. She knows what she's <laughs> talking about." It's like, okay, she's also a freaking doctor. <laughs> yeah. Which we already established. How about she turn around and say, because I'm a doctor, idiot, and you're not. That would have been great. I wish they would have given something more to Cornelia than just sort of laying around sick yeah. and, well, and tired for the movie. <laughs> that, that movie, although the apes look amazing, and, and there's a lot to say good about that movie, is weirdly sexist. Because you've got <laughs> only like one named female in each species, and then... On top of that, I actually yelled about this at Comic-Con on one of the panels. They're getting ready for battle, and one of the apes is like, you know, we get the warriors ready. Like, make sure that the females and infants are over there. I'm like, wait, 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 <laughs> guys, wait. Female apes fight. A female ape can destroy a male human. <laughs> yeah. Are you joking? Why would you send them away? What did you... And, and I yelled at Comic-Con, like, did you learn sexism when you learned English? Like, what happened? <laughs> What? I was doubly disappointed because I had read the prequel novel yeah, before seeing the film. And oh, I heard about that. And in the prequel novel, the Cornelia character is quite well developed, and and she butts heads with Caesar, and it's you know it's interesting. It's not it would have been great to see. Yeah, and so I was expecting her to have 
a substantial role because of the novel. Well, and then why even get Judy Greer? Yeah. Like, and then she just laid around looking, yeah, like, tired. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. then the next movie. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> but see, that's just it. There, there's a tendency with Hollywood also to say, well, the next movie. The next like, one no, will be let's, Black let's Widow. Let's freaking do it now. Yeah. How about now? Although I've forgiven Marvel a little bit for the Black Widow movie because just as the hype really gets going for it, now ScarJo's pregnant, and so she'll want like a year yeah. or two to be with her kid. Oh, yeah, so. and there are factors you always have to deal with yeah. like that. You mentioned Comic-Con. Why don't we jump over to that? Did you get to meet anyone or see any great panels, or did, were you just lost in the deluge of people? This, this was an easy Comic-Con for me, comparatively. I only spoke on two panels and moderated one, which is a light con for me, which is nice. And the other days, I was mainly walking around taking pictures of cosplayers. Also, I, I, met, a, I met a woman named Summer. We had a mutual connection, and she happened to be nearby because she was doing marketing for uh, something. She's a gamer. Mm -hmm. And... She never been to Comic-Con, really didn't know a lot about comics, was curious about it. And a friend of mine had to leave the convention early uh, by a couple days. So I now had her extra pass. So I told her, like, hey, you know, are you doing anything Saturday? Like, do you, do you want this pass to go to Comic-Con? And I, and I was offering it to her. Like, I figured she had friends and she would wander around. But she didn't have any friends that she knew who were there. So she asked, like, if I would be sort of her tour guide, if, if I didn't mind that she tagged along with me. I was like, no, that'd be fantastic. So I, had to, I got to have this whole day of introducing Comic-Con to her and basic comics to her and talk, talking to her about the Silver Age and the Golden Age and Grant Morrison and all this stuff. And it was really fun. Like, it's always fun to introduce stuff you dig to other people, uh, yeah. which is why I don't get this gatekeeper mentality sometimes of, like, that especially gets thrown towards women. It's like, well, you've only seen Star Wars three times, so you're not a real <laughs> fan. It's, it's so stupid. So, like, I, I got such joy out of that. That was so much fun. The big panel I spoke on was the most dangerous women of Comic-Con panel, which is something that happens yearly at Comic-Con now. Uh, Katrina Hill organizes it. She's the action flick chick. She wrote Action Movie Freak. And a uh, great lady. She, in the past, has made it a panel of solely women panelists to, to kind of give it as, as a safe, respectful space for women to share their experiences and their viewpoints on, on many parts of the industry, many aspects of it, because they'll all come from different places in it. Uh, in this case, the subtitle was Positive Portrayal of Women in Pop Culture. So the conversation was about fictional women characters, and she wanted it to very much be that we all benefit from that, not just women. And it's not just women who are interested in good female characters. So she asked me and my, my buddy, Brian Q. Miller, who was script editor on Smallville during the last three seasons, and he'd been there for a while before, and he also wrote the Stephanie Brown Batgirl series, and he's currently writing Smallville season 11 in the comics, which is awesome, and I wish the New 52 was more like that version of events. Uh, so the, we were the first two guys to ever be on this panel, and the other panelists cool. were Adrienne Curry from you know, America's Next Top Model, and, and she's always been a big cosplayer. Uh, Jane Espenson, uh, producer-writer for Husbands, and Once Upon a Time, Battlestar Galactica, and Buffy the Vampire Slayer, uh, Ellen back in the day, and, uh, and she's just a delight. I've gotten to know Jane over the past couple of years, and she's just such a delightful uh, and wise woman. 
And Jenna Bush was there, last name like the beer, not like the president. <laughs> she is a big geek blogger and, and is also an actor, so she was there too. Uh, yeah, we had a great panel and we got into some really great discussions. We all had different viewpoints of the kind of character we personally would like to see. Like Adrian Curry would like to see more like Eon Flux, where it's just unapologetic badass bang them, kill them, take their money and leave them kind of lady because she loves that and well and good. Like, and, and I was saying, you know, I want Carol Danvers to have a movie or a TV show. Like, let's just rock this out. Like, let's, why hasn't she shown up on S.H.I.E.L.D. yet? You know, bring back Spider-Girl, like this Latina superhero who tweets her adventures. That's amazing to me. Like, let's, <laughs> I, I love that crap. Uh, so that was, really, that was really great and it really went well. Audience dug it. Beyond that, it was like, you know, running into my usual friends and, and stuff at the bars and, and wandering around the floors. Susan Eisenberg and I hung out a bit. We've gone to know each other this past year. She was the voice of Wonder Woman in, in Justice League and Justice League Unlimited and the new video games Injustice Justice Goddess Among Us. Uh, she's, she's a voice actor in general. She, she shows up in various, various video games and cartoons. Uh, great lady. She's only really started like delving into the convention world and will sometimes look to me like, explain what he's dressed up as <laughs> and what are they referencing? And she and I actually have a couple panels that we'll be on together at Geek Girl Con in Seattle. So it'll be very fun. And then Sunday, I moderated the Dynamite 10th anniversary panel, which also featured Quentin Tarantino on it. So we got to meet before that panel and, and chat a bit. And then we we had a panel together before, like, a couple thousand people. On a panel with the Tarantino. Right? Wow. That was, that was funny. <laughs> that must have been. <laughs> and he didn't realize this until we started getting into it. So he, he got nervous at first that I wasn't going to talk about the story of what they were doing. But I, for that kind of panel, I know that when you got a guest like Tarantino, if you, you can just talk about the work and everyone talks and then you open it up to questions from the audience, and it becomes just 30 minutes of nothing but questions of Tarantino. So I was deliberately mixing it up, where I only asked a couple questions, then we threw it to the audience for a couple questions, then I asked a couple more questions, so that we would no. keep going back and forth with other people yeah. on the panel. So the project they're doing is Django meets Zorro. It was one of the things where I was told, I'm like, this is going to be just hilarious fun. And then they were talking about it, and I, I now think it's actually going to be a really interesting story. I think there's a lot of, of stuff they're going to delve into. Because uh, one thing they also are getting into is there's immediately you, there's a timeline problem. Because Zorro, the original Zorro, Don Diego Vega, is in his prime in the 1820s, 1830s. Yeah. And Django is a Civil War character. So Matt Wagner, who's writing this, and, and is well known to many comic book fans, initially asked, so is this going to be like one of the many movies where Zorro passes it on to a child or someone else he comes across who becomes his apprentice? And Tarantino said, no, 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 I want the original Zorro. I want that experience and that, and that stuff. So Zorro, it is the original Zorro. He's just old. So it's old Zorro meeting Django. And unlike The Dark Knight Returns or similar stories, it's not he's coming back to pick up the cape after having been retired for a while. He's never stopped. And so immediately they said that. I was like, this is fascinating now. I, I, I'm trying to imagine that. Like, he's just this adrenaline junkie with his, with his buddy Bernardo still at his side. Like these two old men are just going out looking for trouble. I love that. 
Yeah, I love that too, because just like women get pushed aside in general by Hollywood, so do elderly characters. You obviously see more elderly men than elderly women, but... Well, it was one of the reasons that I loved original cast Star Trek movies. I loved that they were still traveling around trying to save the galaxy when they were in their 60s and 70s. Yeah. I, th I think that's just great. And they didn't ignore the age factor. That was part of their character, as it would be. Yeah. I completely agree. I, I think that's also part of what the New 52 is, is a little flawed on, is that it's so determined to de-age these characters. I'm just thinking, you know what? I don't need Superman to now be younger than me. Like, I wouldn't mind if he was 35 and a little more seasoned. There's this idea of, like, you need to de-age it because then somehow they can't keep doing it or they can't keep up with what they're doing. And honestly, that could be a great area of drama itself. If you do have heroes who, you know, at 35 are kind of holding their back, you know, we're getting too old for this thing, Bruce. Like, no, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking about that the other day, though, actually, about how it seems like what the um, most wanted ages is getting younger. Because I remember, what's the girl version of Big called? Something about, like, flirty 30. And I was just thinking the other day, I had this moment where I was like, oh my god, I'm 16, eight and a half, in eight and a half years, I'm 25, and it's all over. And then I was like, wait, no. <laughs> yeah. Shut yeah. up. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're, in certain Hollywood circles, you know, you say a woman's 45, they're like, well, maybe we can cast her as, like, the sexy grandma. <laughs> yeah. What? <laughs> Shut up. It's something that we definitely need to fight. And there, there, you do see people fighting against that. You do see people working against that. The fact that Amy Poehler on, on Parks and Rec is able to be her age and yet in a position of authority and still seen as, by characters in there, as sexually desirable and really cool and energetic is, is fantastic. But there's always been this really stupid idea of whatever audience you're shooting for the character has to be about that age because otherwise they're not into it. It's a really dumb idea because it's, it's in the 90s during the Batman cartoon, the great epic Batman they made series, after the first or second season, Fox said, okay, Robin has to be in every episode. Like, well, why? He's, he's in college now. We've kind of been enjoying like that for the most part, Bruce is on his own. It's given us a lot of stuff to explore. Like, no, he has to be in every episode. Because otherwise, kids won't watch it. Like, but kids are watching it. <laughs> kids like Batman. They're not angry that Batman isn't closer to their age. They want to be Batman. Or they want to know that Batman's out there to protect them. And it even prevented an episode from being done. Because they were going to do an episode with, I think it was Black Canary was going to be introduced. And so they're going to have her and Batgirl team up against Harley and Ivy. And sort of do like a ladies' night mm. thing. <laughs> And, and the note came back, well, where's Robin? And I think it was Paul Dini or Bruce Tim, uh, probably Bruce Tim, just like, well, can't we just have this one episode and without Robin? And so Fox's solution was they cut down the season by one episode. So that just didn't get made at all. <sighs> or budget. It's like, what a stupid solution. You know, like, again, as if kids are really going to turn away from, I didn't need Luke Skywalker to be nine when I saw Star Wars. Like, Luke was awesome. There's these weird uh, advertising things of just of limited imagination. Even with the older characters now in the superhero stories, adaptations, like Sally Field as Aunt May. Uh, and I love Sally Field, and I really liked the first Amazing Spider-Man movie. But it's really weird to not have Aunt May have silver hair. 
and sort of like, <laughs> not even Aunt May is allowed to be older? Sort of look meek and, and, and frail? Like, we, we have to guess her up, too? Like, just, it's, it's a little odd. And, yeah, you see it across, you, across the board, but it's especially with women. It's, it's, it's also one of those reminders to me, like, Mary Tyler Moore, I love that show, and I'll watch it on Hulu. But it's sad to me how much of it is still topical. Likewise, the 90s comedy series Sybil. You have, in the very first episode of that, she's talking about you're either uh, the girl next door, the whore, the widow, the crone. A, a lot of what she said still has merit today, and that's stupid. It's absolutely stupid. If you really did a Captain Marvel movie, I would love it. They did it just like the comic book cast, where you have Carol, who's being the awesome superhero, but then you have her cantankerous, silver-haired friend in her 60s who just can't stop bitching about life and, and also telling Carol some harsh truths she needs to hear. It's also, frankly, there's fun. There's, I, I have a lot of affection for the grizzled old bastard who won't die character. <laughs> you know, uh, Saul Ty in Battlestar, the whole time, like, just keep talking, Saul. You're awesome. Just, <laughs> old, weary soldier who won't die. You've done some very interesting video blogs, like uh, the Style Show. How did you come up with the idea to approach superheroes and such from a style angle? It's one of those things where it, you look back and you realize you always were doing something. Mm -hmm. phrase it the right way because I, I used to draw a lot I don't really draw that much these days unless I need to get an idea out uh, and if I need to visualize an idea or if I need to visualize what a character looks like but I used to draw like daily when I was drawing superheroes and, and you can see this in my old sketchbooks from like junior high and early high school I got into this habit of doing what at the time I called comparison drawings where I would kind of do a little uh showcase of the same hero in the same pose but then keep changing which costume they wore uh just because i thought that was interesting of like and spider-man wore this suit at one point and spider-man wore this suit and superman did this and da, da, da. even if it was just for like that one weird story where they were fighting new gods or something i just wanted to show the comparison there at least to myself or to a couple friends it was always just interesting to me of like how that gave a different feel for the character or gave a different idea of what kind of what kind of story it was so I was already doing some videos online uh, with, with a couple friends, the Crazy Sexy Geeks videos, and I ran into Tim Gunn at a signing because he, he had appeared in the first issue of Models, Inc., which was a fun Marvel title. And I was interviewing him just based on that, and we, we had a little bit of a fun riff where I asked him, you know, how do you feel about the bizarre superhero fashion at times? And I asked him, you know, what superhero would you really remake because it just doesn't work and and he talked about like the hulk's ripped pants just <laughs> palpitations and it was just this nice riff and then he was signing and i just started thinking about my old comparison drawings and that it is interesting like anytime a superhero's costume changes it becomes a big topic of discussion and and so i just thought like wouldn't it be interesting to, to ask him from a fashion perspective you know what it would be. So I asked him, you know, tell me if this is a waste of your time, but would you, would you want to do any videos like this? And he said, that sounds hilarious. So he was up for it. It took us a while to, to coordinate and, and get it done. And then we filmed it and he really had a fun time. I imagined it differently at first. I imagined that I would essentially be letting him do the, do the talking and showing him stuff and letting him comment. 
but Tim was much more interested in a conversation, and he wanted to know the context of these characters. He wanted to know, like, what year was this? What kind of character is this? Who does she? Who does she fight? Does she mm-hmm. fight supervillains or does she fight muggers? And we got this dialogue going that worked really nicely. And then he said, you know, we should do this again. So we did a few more videos. Um, I've been hoping to do another video with him uh, on Batman sooner rather than later. But I mean, he's obviously extremely busy. Yeah. Uh, and also I've been traveling. So you know, it's again, you got to coordinate. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's been really fun. I didn't expect it to take off as well as it did. And, and then I didn't expect it to carry over into me. Uh, when I started doing the column afterward, Agent of Style, I didn't expect it would get a huge response because I figured, well, people were really there for Tim Gunn. Mm-hmm. But it got a good fan base very quickly. People were really interested in talking about the evolutions of these looks and what worked, and also because I was giving it the context of the stories and who was who was in charge at the time, what was their idea of, is, are we looking at the character differently now? Is it just we, we have a better idea of the art? Or is there a new person behind the mask? Or what? Is this an evil twin? What's going on? It was surprising to me when I would finish you know, these long pieces and then I would be asked, well, why don't you write about this too? Or you didn't add this. And I was like, God, do you want these to be longer? This is, this is nuts. So, which was nice. Uh, that column's on hiatus right now as I focus on some other projects. But it's always nice to, to see uh, that people respond to it and, and are curious to see more. I remember when I was littler, I would go in and get Donald Duck comics. And that was like my thing. But I never really actually got into comic books that much. I tried, we got The Walking Dead, I've read some of The Walking Dead, but, um, and I'm an avid reader, I read a lot of novels and stuff, but for some mm-hmm. reason there's some sort of jump in between comic books and novels for me. So it's like, I feel like the way I read comic books is the opposite of how a lot of uh, geeks read comic books. Like, that's easier than novels, but no, for me it's like words. So as we get more and more into Marvel, I'm wanting to read the comics, and then we go to the source, and there's just an entire shelf. It's like Best of Iron Man, but then there are like 10 editions, and (laughs) they're all like this big, huge. So for me and other people who maybe, uh, like my friend... Lydia is also just getting interested in Marvel. Do you have any suggestions for maybe young geeks who didn't really grow up with the Marvel comics about where we could jump in? What do you want is is the first question. I mean, <laughs> that's the other thing because like it's when we talk about superhero comics, you know, we we tend to talk about a, it as if it's a genre, and really it's not. Like there are so many subgenres of it. A Doctor Strange story will give you something very different than an Iron Man story. I generally tend to say for certain folks, if they can have an appreciation for things that were done in a, of a certain era, of a bygone era, if, if it's not going to freak them out to look at old artwork and maybe some campy dialogue. For folks like the Marvel comics, I often suggest grabbing uh, the Masterwork editions, which will show you the original stories from like the 60s. They introduce these characters and it collects like the first eight or ten issues. Because with Marvel Comics, like a lot of it still springs from those early issues. We, we're still talking about the Stan Lee, Jack Kirby characters to this day, and the Stan Lee, D- Steve Ditko characters. If that seems like a concern, or they're not really into comics already, and it's sort of like testing them, um, and they need something they're going to take seriously. For Iron Man, I often suggest Extremis, which was loosely some of the inspiration for Iron Man 3. But it's Iron Man dealing with a new kind of enemy, but also having flashbacks to how he became Iron Man. So it's a decent uh, intro story to that. Guardians of the Galaxy, 
just restarted their series. So Brian Michael Bendis's run, Volume 1, has been collected. So that's a fun kind of intro to it. And, and they'll make a few references to past stories, but if you dig that, then it's not a big thing to go back and, and find those past stories once you get that introduction out of the way. Hulk can be hard because Hulk has so many incarnations over the years. Avengers also, I would say Avengers Masterworks. I would definitely say Avengers Masterworks Volume 1 because that's the first several issues of the Avengers. And it might look silly to today's standards, but it's also really just straightforward, fun action and, and adventure. And you can see these little elements that got used in the movie of, of like, Loki's role in their creation, stuff like that. Is there any other particular character or movie family of titles you would be interested in checking out? Well, I've just been reading online actually about the latest Hawkeye comics because I know they're oh, doing yeah. like the Marvel Now thing, so that's yeah, still yeah. in its first few issues, I guess. But um, yeah, I've been seeing comics, uh, especially Hawkeye's comics, look really, really awesome because he's deaf or something for some reason. And I heard that the last issue was almost entirely in sign language and the speech bubbles are just blank because Clint can't hear people talking, so you don't either since it's from his perspective. Interesting. And there's been a lot of talk about it because people are frustrated. They're like, well, I can't read this. I don't understand what's going on. Well, exactly. Yeah. That's yeah. the point. Welcome to someone else's world. Yeah. Yeah, Matt Fraction's been writing that. And that was one of those surprise hits. Because even though people loved Matt Fraction for his other work, it's still like, well, Hawkeye. And there are a lot of writers who can't handle Hawkeye. Where really Hawkeye is interesting when he's arguing with Captain America. <laughs> and, and then Matt Fraction should look, no, we've got it good. And then also Matt did the really cool thing of, uh, there was a while a few years ago where, where Hawkeye was dead. And this uh, teenage girl, Kate Bishop, became the new Hawkeye. I've read about her, too. <laughs> yeah, she was freaking awesome. And then Clint came back and eventually took on the Hawkeye role again because the movie was coming out. And a few of us, myself included, were kind of disappointed because, like, all right, Clint's okay, but, man, we like Kate Bishop. And what Fraction's done is that Kate is in the book as well. She's a co-star of the book. And it's been great because you're really seeing sort of the Hawkeye legacy through this guy who just can't seem to stop falling in love with every woman he meets. But the thing is a, a clear distinction. I actually, I talked about this. Uh, I didn't talk about this. I, I talked, uh, I saw a panel where they were talking about this and I, I haven't talked to them afterwards, but Matt Fraction and Jen Van Meter and, and a couple others uh, were talking a panel about Hawkeye's habit of sleeping around in the Marvel Universe and that a reporter asked you know, isn't this anti-feminist? And they were like, well, no, he's not lying or cheating on anyone. He's not putting on false airs. Like, Clint just falls into, into things very quickly and easily and makes bad decisions. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, like, yeah, he's got a lot of exes who are kind of angry with him or he's, he tends to, like, fall in love with work teammates because they're these amazing women. And he doesn't think of, like, whether or not they could date anything. It's just like, you know, I like you right now. <laughs> and, and he does. And, and it's, it's, not a, it's not a false thing or even about sex. It's like he just falls in love with women left and right. So it's been really fun to see that. And it's been really fun to see Kate Bishop in the comic make complete fun of him for being such a terrible, <laughs> terrible, honest womanizer, basically. <laughs> an ethical womanizer. Just like, you know, just stop making out with these women. <laughs> you know, just stop. 
Uh, it's great to see her do that. And it's also great because you've got the generation gap between them. No, Hawkeye's very fun. I would also suggest, which is not in the movies yet, but hopefully that, that's incoming, the new Captain Marvel series starring Carol Danvers in the role. I think the first collection is Learning to Fly by Kelly Sue DeConnick. And it's just, it's just great. And she gives you the basics of her origin, the first issue, and you just go from there. That she, She's been Ms. Marvel for many years, but she's put that name aside now. She got her powers from Marvel's original Captain Marvel superhero, so... So now she's taking on that mantle and she's stepping up to a new game and, and she's rocking out. The new Ms. Marvel series starring Kamala by G. Willow Wilson is fantastic. It's not been collected yet, but it's on its maybe fifth or sixth issue. So much fun. Uh, Islamic teenager in, in New Jersey who writes Avengers fanfic and just loves superheroes and will look at the Captain Marvel poster and think, Ah, uh, if only I had boobs and hips, I would look great in that costume. And you know, because she's like fourteen or fifteen, and she winds up getting powers, and and because she loves Captain Marvel so much, and Captain Marvel is no longer using the Ms. Marvel title, she takes on she's a new Ms. Marvel, and you've just got this great. She's she does the internal monologue, and she's so much fun. She makes Simpsons references. Uh, she can shape shift. At one point, when she's growing in, in mass, she shouts "Imbigen." <laughs> as, as her as her power word, and she just met Wolverine the latest issue, and she's like Wolverine, claws, so much excite. Like, <laughs> like oh Kamala, you're adorable. Keep talking. This is lovely. So yeah, I'm a big fan of that. Yeah, those are the the strongest. Mark Wade's doing really interesting things with the Hulk right now. If you can grab Mark Wade's indestructible Hulk, the premise of that in the very first issue, Mark had him, Bruce Banner basically contact Shield. And tell them, look, you know, I've been trying to cure this condition for years. It's obviously not working. And it's been keeping me back from doing amazing things. Because you know what? I'm as smart as Tony Stark. And I should be changing the world, too. So I'm just, I'm done wasting my time trying to cure something that doesn't seem to, to work. Especially now that the Hulk and I are kind of on a slightly friendlier relationship right now. So here's the deal. I will work for you, S.H.I.E.L.D., I will develop technology. Uh, you'll fund my research. And in exchange, when I get angry, point me somewhere where you need the Hulk's power. And so you basically have the Hulk as like this missile that occasionally gets launched by S.H.I.E.L.D. and things. Oh. And it's a really interesting dynamic. And, and Mark understands that you've got to make Bruce Banner as interesting as the Hulk. Uh, otherwise, we're just waiting for him. And that's not good. So it, Indestructible Hulk is a really fun series. Yeah, I really like what they've been doing with Mark Ruffalo in the movies. Yeah, it's, it's the same thing where yeah. it's no longer, frankly, whining. It, it's a guy who realizes his life is messed up and he's just trying to deal with it as best as he can. And seeing a character deal with pain instead of being forlorn about it is, is more interesting in the long term. Now I really want to see Mark Ruffalo on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Mark Ruffalo Just think is how the great best. It would be if they I love him incorporated as that into Bruce the Banner show. so much. Because he's got that haunted look, but he's also... And one of the things I loved about it, and it's one of the things that kills me about certain, certain shows, is that he has developed a dark sense of humor about it. And that is a very human thing to do. We do that in terrible situations. Homicide cops develop a gallows humor. EMTs will joke when they see a terrible scene of like, well, you know, there's your brain on drugs or something. Because like, yeah. you have to 
to stay sane and to not want to just drink for the rest of the night when you get home. And he does that from the beginning, even before we, we see what he's dealing with and that he's got this new way of coping with things. You know, Black Widow shows up and he's almost amused by it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, what, what are you, what are you going to do? Are you trying to intimidate me? I also love that scene because he, he makes a reference. I forget the line now. He makes a reference about things he's missed out on life. And you see his hand gently brushes the baby cradle next to him. And I just love that little thing of like, oh, Bruce wanted a family. It's a wonderful Ruffalo and Whedon scripts and, and direction. Like just, just gave a really a Hulk that, that now works beyond he's tormented. Just as why the TV series worked because Bill Bixby playing David Banner, you, you had this guy who wanted to be cured but also was doing good stuff in the meantime. He would, he would help people he saw in trouble and he would pursue research. He would even make friends to some degree even though he knew he had to leave the town eventually. You've got to make that character interesting and have agency beyond just being purely reactionary, which is also part of why I don't like Man of Steel. Superman is way too reactionary in that film and he he follows his one father for half the film then he follows his other father for half the film just like no at some point you say your plan is wrong this is my path yeah so uh captain america there's a bunch of stuff you can you can pick up if you can find a miniseries in the 90s called sentinel of liberty it was a reworking of his origin and a lot of that reworking became the movie first avenger the jerk hodge who Peggy Carter punches, he's in there. There's a Peggy-like person in there, Cynthia Glass. Uh, there's a great showdown between him and the Red Skull in front of a crowd of Nazis and Hitler as witnesses, <laughs> where the Skull like even gets decked out in freaking medieval armor, and he's attacking Cap with a morning star, and he calls him Abel because he's Cain. And it's this wonderful over-the-top image. And then just when it looks like, oh, no, things are bad, Bucky comes crashing through the wall in a tank that he has <laughs> died Nazi scum on the side because <laughs> he took the time to take paint and paint those words. <laughs> Rather than rush the rescue, he needed to get that joke in. Uh it's a great it's a great story. There's also um I think it was called The New Deal. It's a good trade. That was Captain America dealing with September 11th. Great story John Cassidy did the art. Oh, actually, one Captain America trade everyone should get. If you if you've seen one of the movies, if you've only seen the Avengers whatever. Man Out of Time by Mark Wade cuz in the original Stan Lee Jack Kirby issues, he's frozen alive and then the Avengers like on their fourth mission find him in the ice and they revive him. And it's this whole issue of him kind of adjusting, and then he's just sort of there. And then he helps them fight Kang the Conqueror and other things. This explores basically the days we didn't see in between the, their adventures, where he's really exploring this world that there were other people who served as Captain America after he was gone. And he also finds out the Fantastic Four have some kind of a time machine, which at that point they did have in the comics. And sort of just asks, why can't you just send me back? And they have to have this discussion about, can we risk that? Because our history shows you never returned. Yeah. You, you vanished that day. And there's even a discussion with the president about, you know, this might be for the safety of our history. That it sucks, but you, you've got to stay here as a man out of time. 
And it's just this fascinating exploration of, of Captain America as a character and, and, and even not initially accepting the world he sees around him, initially thinking he's obviously having some dreams. And this is just, okay, I'll play along. And, and, and how, do you, how do you deal with the sudden fact of like decades have passed? And they've done a really good job of that in the movies, even though you have such limited time to sure. uh, to uh, give to any little plot line like that. But yeah, his his list of things to catch up on. Yeah, right. and and the incredibly poignant scene with Peggy Carter, and they've taken time to uh, keep that as part of his character. That he's got this tragic story. It was so well done, I thought, and also I think it's very true to the character in the comics and in the movies that in both cases the people he hangs out with the most as soon as he wakes up are soldiers and superheroes because he can relate to them quickly on certain things yeah. they have a common ground and it helps him kind of adjust just to things i also really liked that he doesn't care if you think his values are old-fashioned it's you know what you yeah. step to my standards and i think that's a really great theme about captain america and i wish they would pursue that with superman in the movies of you know, the world is dark, but we can be better, yeah. as Cap says. And I think, that's, I think that's great. I think they've really done a fantastic job. with. And Chris Evans just pitch perfect on, on the character. As you've achieved your status as professional comic book historian, and you've talked a little bit about getting to do the uh, DVD extras and stuff, what is the most amazing thing that you've gotten called in on like that? Was there something that was particularly stood out for you that you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm getting to do this? Probably doing a Q&A with Grant Morrison, which is also how I got my agent. Because he was doing Super Gods, his book on the history of superheroes and also his own personal history, mm -hmm. paralleling it. And I was there at the book signing and I interviewed him for Newsarama. We had a really nice short interview. And then I just happened to get into a conversation with his wife, Kristen. And we talked for a good half hour about stories we were liking, stories we didn't like, how we were nervous about Man of Steel, what, what we thought about the Green Lantern movie, stuff like that. And it was a really nice conversation. And I didn't want to monopolize her time, so I was excusing myself. And she said, hey, hold on. And she talked to some representative from Random House who was there. And she came up to me and said, look, Grant's doing a Q&A tonight at Barnes & Noble in Tribeca. And... He's supposed to talk about the book for half an hour, and he's supposed to answer questions for half an hour. And he doesn't like to just talk. He likes an, an interview format. He likes a conversation. So uh, if you're not doing anything tonight, would you <laughs> mind like coming and, and sort of doing the Q&A with him and then maybe feeling questions? Because you obviously know his work very well. You obviously know the history of these characters very well. You say you do a podcast and such, so, so I'm sure you don't mind speaking in front of an audience. Like, Would, you, would that be okay with you? And I was like, oh, that'd be fantastic. So I gave the Random House people a quick bio to introduce me. And then I went off and grabbed some food. And, and I met with them at the, at the bookstore later. And by sheer chance, I happened to walk in maybe three, five seconds max after Grant and Kristen walked in. So we all ran into each other on the escalator. <laughs> and, and Kristen was so sweet where she was like, I didn't rope you into this, did I? Like, I think that. <laughs> I pressured you. Like, do you have plans? And I was like, no, 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 this is totally cool. Uh, and then Grant looked up, was like, oh, Alan, and like ran down to me on the escalator. He's like, Alan, I'm sorry. I, I didn't recognize your name when you interviewed me. And then I read the bio that you gave to the Random House people. Uh, you write Agent of Style. I was like, yeah. He's like, I read Agent of Style. Like, no, <laughs> don't. You're freaking Grant Morrison. <laughs> like, 
No, I love what you had to say about Hawkman. Like, because you get it, you get like the the form and the function must follow, and, and <laughs> the design talks about the spirit of the character. And the, and so we just started talking for half an hour backstage about like how much we liked each other's work, basically, <laughs> and and which was just freaking bizarre. And yeah, wonderful. And then also talking about the new Fifty Two, what was coming up, and our thoughts on Superman, and also our thoughts on haters. Because uh, he was talking about, you know, the haters he gets. And I was telling him, like, look, dude, I get haters, and I'm no one. Like, you know, haters are haters. I even I shared with him also one of my favorite haters, which was uh, when I was first doing Agent of Style. I forget what he was responding to. First he was saying he wanted that I was doing it a service by not having more information on certain things and that some of the comments he could do without uh, in, in my work. And I was just like, well, I'm trying to keep everything light and funny. He's like, no, I get it. I just... I've I've never been interested in humor, <laughs> and I was and I was just like, well, then you're not a freaking human being. <laughs> <laughs> and and Grant immediately laughed like, oh my god, you were being hated on by a robot. Like, that's exactly it. Some some sentient robot out there was criticizing my my analysis of Thor's costumes. <laughs> and then we did this Q and A together, and it was fantastic. And and uh, it was just. Which really means that, you know, I sat on a stage for half an hour just chatting with Grant about his work yeah. before we turn it over to the audience. And so that was just a fantastic thing. And then his book agent was in the audience with his wife, Kristen, and he came up and we talked. And he said, you know, Kristen didn't, Kristen told me you haven't read the book yet. And I was like, no, I just got it today because it just came out today. I don't have, I'm not on your list for like preview copies or anything. I said, but you knew all this stuff, and you you knew, and you knew that one thing that Grant didn't know about Superman and stuff. Like, what you uh, so what do you do? And I gave him the brief idea of it, and and he said, oh, it sounds like you might have a book in you too. And I was like, oh, I, I think I have like four or five, you know. But this is just <laughs> where I am right now. And he was like, you know, I like your confidence. And he gave me his card and said, let's talk. And we did, and we talked some more, and we talked some more, and we went back and forth, and then. He introduced me to one of his best agents, uh, Brandy Bowles. Is it Foundry? Uh, Foundry is is the agency. And we chatted, and then Brandy was like, "All right, you know, you don't just have one good idea, so I guess I'm your agent. Like, let's let's start rocking this out." And then uh, we were going, we were working on a book that has yet to be published, sadly. But a couple of weeks into it, then I got the offer for the unofficial Game of Thrones cookbook, mm -hmm. and that led to the two trivia books I did, and then. The book I wanted to do on, on the history of Captain America got rejected, but then one of the publishers said, you know, we kind of were looking for a history of Doctor Who, and we know your guy like, likes that. So like, okay, so suddenly I did Doctor Who a history. It was this combination of, of Luck and, and Grant and, and his wife Kristen being so cool and thinking it would be <laughs> a good idea to put me on stage. Yeah. And and then my own just pushing myself out there and, and being confident enough to tell this guy, no, I can write books and stuff like that, that, that sort of spiraled into all this. But honestly, even without all that, you know, just, just to really talk to Grant about stories and to talk to him about Superman and to talk to him in such a way that, you know, when we run by each other at conventions now, he'll come up and say hi to me, ask how I'm doing. Like, you know, that we're friendly. Right. Yeah. Like, we're not drinking buddies, but we're friendly now. <laughs> yeah. And that's awesome to me because I admire his work so much. Even even if there are some stories I don't think quite hit it for me, I admire the passion and experimentation he puts into it. It's like, it's it's a little bit like I love Conan O'Brien 
not all of his sketches make me laugh, but I admire that he's always trying something new and he's always pushing some things out there to yeah. do that. He never settles on something. And I'm really looking forward to Grant Morrison's multiversity. I think that's going to blow some minds. You know, plus I, I got this great agent, Brandy, who's just fantastic as an agent and as an editor. Yeah. And is helping me put together some fiction right now. So we'll see what happens with that. Well, that was going to be my next question. Upcoming projects. What have you got in the pipeline that you can talk about? I'm working on a novel. It's both a love letter and a criticism of comics and of, of how reboots should be done. <laughs> okay. uh, I often I often point to um, Battlestar, uh, Godzilla, Doctor Who. These are excellently done reboots because they're they're coming from a place of love. Correct. And and I find it fascinating that all the Godzilla reboots treat the original movie as canon. That they all agree like this is the original starting point, and from there just we make different branches. I think that's fascinating. That's one project. I'm working on a TV pilot that a couple of friends of mine and I put together. We're pitching it around. Without giving anything away about the story, it's, it's two women fighting evil, basically. Fighting evil and, and badness. What else do you need? And actually goes back to the generation gap we talked about before, because one of them uh, is not a spring chicken. If we get to do it, it's going to be extremely fun. I'm also, I've been developing with another friend of mine uh, a movie script, which started off as a Buffy-type character, but now I've, I've been jokingly call it Sarah Connor 2.0. That's the main stuff that's happening right now. Um, I also, I might be coming back to doing a regular vlog again on YouTube. I'm in talks with some people about doing something along those lines. And it's really the major stuff. And then, of course, constantly freelancing here and there. Yeah. If Doctor Who A History sells a few more copies, we might do an expanded edition and an updated edition to take Peter Capaldi into account. So we'll see what happens on that end. We will have to have you back in the future as some of these things unfold. Sure. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Sure, sure. And anyone who uh, wants, you can follow me on Twitter, at SizzlerKissler. My website, alankissler.com, is an archive for a lot of my work. And check out Doctor Who A History. Uh, available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other stores. We'll see ya. Take care. And that's all the time we have for this episode. Now, after we recorded with Alan, we did go out to the comic book store, and we bought Hawkeye Volume 1, My Life as a Weapon, with issues number 1 through 5, with Young Avengers Presents number 6, which is Hawkeye's Marvel Now thing, so it's kind of rebooting his series and I read almost the entire thing on the car ride home it is amazing <laughs> yeah and I have never I mean even with The Walking Dead which is a phenomenal comic book I can't I have a hard time getting into it with this one it was amazing it was an immediate fascination the artist is amazing the writer is amazing it's perfect <laughs> Yeah, we both loved it. I recommend it 100% for everyone and anyone at all. All right, tune in next month for episode 25, our series three premiere, movie titles that start with X. We'll be talking about X-Men, Days of Future Past, the previous movies in the series, and how we think they compare to each other. Generations Geek is part of the Chronic Riff Network, which broadcasts from Xavier's School for Gifted Youngsters. Please give their other fine podcasts a listen at chronicriff.com. Thanks for listening, and come, come back, back next, next time. time.
no geeks were harmed in the making of this podcast. Ooh, shiny.